Happy Halloween, Nightwings. Welcome to episode 11 of the Horror Headquarters. I am so excited you guys are all joining me tonight. And I can't wait for you guys to hear what I have planned for this episode. Now, if it isn't obvious yet, Halloween is my favorite holiday in the entire year. I absolutely adore it. It is just my favorite. I love everything about it. Dressing up, passing out candy, all the spiritual stuff, all that like haunted stuff about how ghosts get to roam the streets and the earth freely on this day. Like a portal opens and everything. I love it. I love those stories. I love everything about it. It's just so interesting and magical day and it's my favorite. I just wish it wasn't so freaking cold where I am when it's Halloween. Nonetheless, it is my favorite holiday. Now there is one specific movie on Halloween that I love to stream and it's a classic. It is a horror classic that made a lot of actors who they are today. It really put them out there and shined the spotlight on them. It's filled with horror, with suspense, lots of suspense, and a man with a white mask. Michael Myers has entered the chat. This is Halloween 1978. Halloween, the original movie, premiered on October 25th, 1978 with a budget of $325,000 and a box office of over $70 million. It was directed and created by John Carpenter. It features Jamie Lee Curtis's first feature role, Nick Castle and Kyle Richards, to name a few. Now throughout this episode, I'm definitely going to be giving you guys my opinion, but I'm gonna be focusing more on the creepy facts that happened behind the scenes, during production, during the film, the creation, all that stuff because I want you guys to know a little bit of the history of this film and how amazingly done it was. As I'm explaining certain parts of the movie, I'll be inserting something I call fun frights. And here's one for you right now. This film takes place on October 30th, 1978. And I'm recording this episode on October 30th, 1978. I am just discovering this right now. This was not planned at all. This is kind of crazy but it fits the name perfectly, Fun Frights. <laughs> now just a little bit of a quick rundown on this film if you have not watched it before. Basically, on a cold Halloween night in 1963, a six-year-old boy named Michael Myers brutally murdered his 17-year-old sister Judith. After so, he was sentenced and locked away for 15 years. But on October 30th, 1978, while being transferred for a court date, he stole a car and escaped. He returned to his quiet hometown in Haddonfield, Illinois, where he looks for his next victims, one being Laurie Strode. Here's a fun fright for you guys. Did you know that Jamie Lee Curtis was cast only because of her parents? Being that they were movie stars and humongous, especially that her mother was in Psycho, which is another film that is so phenomenal, the infamous shower scene that takes place in that film. But they wanted a big name actor or someone to attract viewers, hence why they used Jamie Lee Curtis. 
the film was also originally titled as the babysit murders but it was the producer whose name is erwin yablond who encouraged john carpenter to change it to halloween and turns out the story only really began to take shape when he had that title so it was a great recommendation and hence why it's called halloween now the original script was set to take place over a few days but carpenter condensed it into one single night which is kind of crazy to think about because watching the film you realize that everything happens in one night of course but i never could have imagined this film if it took place over a couple days or a few days for that matter it's just so much more intense when it happens through one night and i also thought it took place on halloween but turns out it takes place on October 30th, 1978, and not October 31st. Okay, I have to talk about the score of this film because it is absolutely phenomenal, and it is so creepy, and it is also my mother's ringtone. Yep. It's my mother's ringtone and she loves it. She loves Halloween and she loves that ringtone of Michael Myers. So yeah, fun fact or fun fright, excuse me, about the soundtrack is that John Carpenter made it himself over the span of only a few days to save money. He did not have the money to afford like someone making a complete soundtrack and pay someone for it. So he made it himself over a few days, all of it. The whole soundtrack that's insane usually writing a soundtrack for a movie takes so long and he created it in such a short amount of time and as you know it went on to become one of the most famous soundtracks for a horror film today Something else so interesting about this film is that it was filmed in the same year as released, but in the spring. And it also did not take place in the Midwest. It took place in California, even though it says it takes place in Haddonfield, Illinois. But keep in mind, like I said, this was filmed in the spring when there wasn't cold weather, when there wasn't leaves on the ground. Hence, the leaves were made of paper. Like That shocked me. The leaves in this film were reused in every scene. And they were made of paper. And if you look very closely at particular scenes, like for example, when Michael is hiding behind the hedge and Laurie sees him, when she's walking towards the bush, there's wet spots on the floor. But as she's walking away, there's no more wet spots. For filmmakers and critics, this shows that the film was not shot in order, how one scene would be shot at a certain time, another one at a different time. But this film was shot over a 20-day period. I believe it was a 20-day period, which is also insane because that's three weeks to film something. And like that's with editing and all that stuff. And that takes a lot of time. As someone that's created their own short film, that is a very tight spot to be filming all of these different scenes. Something else to take into consideration is that being that this was filmed in the spring of 78, pumpkins were extremely rare. 
So they had a very hard time finding pumpkins as well as doing it on a budget. Because like I said, they did not want to spend a lot of money on this and they had to pay all the actors, which is included in the 325000 budget, along with the camera and the filming. And also, the dark scenes in this film are dark unintentionally. They didn't mean for it to be that dark because they couldn't afford any lighting in specific scenes. For example, when one of the guys hears something in the closet, I believe, it's completely pitch dark. It's very dark and you really only see the shadows of Michael and the other character. That was unintentional being that they did not have any lighting for the dark and everything that was filmed in the dark, it, like it was that way and they couldn't do anything to fix it. Also talking about light, in the closet scene when Michael is trying to kill Lori because she's hiding in the closet, he accidentally turns on the light and you can like see him turn it off as well to like make the scene more intense. Which is kind of a rookie mistake because like I said he didn't mean to turn it on. But as soon as he realized he turned it on he like went to turn it off. I'm like he should have just left it on or something or like incorporated it into the character. But you know. Okay. Now there's just so many amazing scenes in this film that I absolutely adore. Like, so much. And I feel like they really set the standard for horror films in that time, all the way leading up until now. Because that film terrified audiences like crazy. And if you go on YouTube, you can literally search up people's reactions from 1978 and 1979 from when they watched the film. They were like screaming at certain parts. It's just so good. And they were like cheering on for Lori. And I feel like Lori was one of the first final girls in a film. And it really cemented her as a final girl. As well as Jamie Lee Curtis as a phenomenal actress. Because she really did do so well in this film. Even though she was picked based on her parents. She still did an absolutely phenomenal job. And I couldn't have seen anyone else do this role besides her. Now, there are a few scenes that I definitely want to point out. The first one being the amazing hedge scene that I talked about very lightly in the other part of this episode. <laughs> so the reason I love this episode so much is because it's pretty much silent. Laurie sees Michael, but like her friend, of course, while this is happening, is like rummaging through her like purse or bag. And then Michael disappears and she nudges her friend to go look behind the bush. Her friend goes and Michael's gone. That scene is just so intense. Such a, it's like a marker in the horror industry. Because that scene is known so well throughout so many people that are horror fanatics like myself. And honestly, anytime I come across a hedge, I'm like, oh God, is Michael Myers going to be there waiting for me? It just terrified me. It made me terrified of hedges about walking on a sidewalk where there's a hedge in the way. So that's definitely one of my favorite scenes. Okay, I'm so excited to talk about this next one because I think it's one of my favorites in the film. And that's the scene, the window scene where Laurie looks out the window and Michael's standing there next to all these white sheets and then he disappears. It's so good and it's so intense. 
and I was like shaking. I'm like, oh my god, oh my god. And then like at the next shot, he's not there anymore. I'm like, oh god, where did he go? And like Laurie knows at this point that she's being stalked by her friends, thinking that she's crazy. But a fun fact about this scene is that this very scene was also used in American Horror Story Murder House Episode 1. Ben Harmon looks out the window and he sees a stalker looking at him. And he goes outside and he's like rummaging through a bunch of white cloths. And that's where the stranger is standing is in a bunch of white cloths. And they took inspiration from this film, of course. And I just love that contrast between a TV show that was set in 2011 compared to this movie that was set in 1978. So that just shows you that that was just such an iconic scene, an iconic layout for a horror film, and that it's incorporated into American Horror Story. So yeah, if you guys didn't know that, now you know. And if you watch Murder House, you guys would remember that scene as well. Here's another fun fright for you guys. Did you know that Michael Myers' mask was actually a William Shatner mask that the filmmakers painted fish belly white? Now the prop team was given two potential masks. They were given a smiling clown mask with frizzy red hair which would match Michael's original mask that he used when he was 6 years old to murder his 17 year old sister or a mask that cost the crew $1. Yep. The Shatner mask costed one buck and they just painted it and then it went on to create 70 million dollars for the film that is a crazy fact but it is the truth it really is and that is insane and they also realized they made the right decision when they put the mask on him and they're like okay yeah that's a lot more terrifying than <laughs> this of uh, the like smiling down clown because it's just like the straight face like the slow walk Another thing that's so iconic about this film. This this film just is it's so iconic and it set up the horror industry. It like it was impossible to top because of how good it was. And it literally ranks in the top ten, if not the top five, most scariest films in the industry. And I still think it has that fear factor today. As long as you can suspend reality and think about how this would have been back in the nineteen seventy-eight this for, for audiences was terrifying and it still is to me today i don't even have to suspend reality to realize how well done this film was done and another fun fright for you guys half of the budget half of the three hundred thousand dollars that was used for this movie was used on the aspect ratio they secured panavision cameras so that the film would have a more cinematic aspect ratio which is insane to think that they spent one hundred fifty thousand dollars on the aspect ratio but they really wanted like the ratio the aspect of it and like the picture to look absolutely phenomenal and it went on to be the highest grossing indie film of all time so they they did everything right with this film john carpenter had a script three hundred thousand dollars and actors and also michael myers the person that played michael myers there was three different people that played him they were paid $25 a day for 
the roll. $25 a day. That's it. Another fun fright for you guys is that Jamie Lee Curtis was paid only $8,000 for this film. I think, honestly, that she was paid that much because it was her first film. But $8,000 is nothing for how successful the film was. I mean, sure, they didn't know how successful it was going to be. But $8,000 for a box office run of over $70 million. John Carpenter made bank on this film. That's, that's all I can say, is that he made so much. Also, the actor that played Michael Myers, who was Nick Castle... He was given very minimal direction from John Carpenter about how to play the killer. For example, during the scene where Myers kills his victim by impaling him against the wall with a butcher knife, he told Castle to tilt his head, quote-unquote, like he's observing a corpse. That just makes me think about the process that the actor was going through as he was preparing for this role, even though he's not speaking, like it's a nonverbal role. And you can't see his true face in this film. So I'm like thinking, how was he prepping for all of this? Especially being that it was only within a 20 day period. He obviously had to get his stuff together, if you know what I mean. I definitely have to say that the murder scenes in this film are extremely gory, considering how tiny the budget for this film was. I mean, we have one of Lori's friends getting choked to death through a phone cord while she's on the phone with Lori. Another one being impaled to a wall with a knife. And then I believe the third one being in a car. She was like choked to death. <laughs> these, these were brutal. And then it all comes together so perfectly terribly but in the best way is when Laurie enters Michael's house and he sees Judith Myers tombstone and then one of her friends that are dead and then a third one comes swinging backwards through like a doorway or something and then the third one is when a cabinet opens and she sees her friend's dead body like gross Gross, terrifying, horrific. That's just so much happening at once. And also, that's an example of the rule of three. Which, if you don't know what the rule of three is, go watch one of my previous episodes because I talk about it. Or search it up. But, yeah, the rule of three. She sees three different bodies in one room in one scene. There's just so many fun frights or fun facts about this film that like I want to go through all of them. Another one is that did you guys know that the movie's stabbing sound effect was made with a knife that was plunged into a watermelon? That's actually very smart and very good for marketing because the knife like plunging into people's bodies sounds so real. So they definitely knew what they were doing. Another fun fact is that Jamie Lee Curtis admitted that she hates scary movies she literally said quote unquote that she loathes horror movies and that she does not like to be surprised and this actually 
played out a lot throughout this film because Jamie Lee Curtis, after shooting her first couple scenes, she thought she did a terrible job, but John Carpenter actually called her congratulating her, saying how well she did, and she was also given a fear meter. Um, the reason being is that the scenes were filmed very far apart from each other. They weren't filmed one after the other. They were like very divided, so he gave her a fear meter to tell her how scared she should be in this specific scene because like the scenes weren't filmed one after another so he wanted it all to connect which I think is a very smart idea if you're not doing one scene after another it's like filming episode 10 of a TV show and then going backwards that like no it's like filming episode 10 and then episode 5 and then episode 7 and then episode 8 and then episode 1 it's just all over the place it wasn't filmed in sync but I mean it came out perfectly and I wouldn't even have noticed it if I hadn't known this fact. So it's kind of cool. Now in this film, there are many nods to Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. One being that Michael Myers' psychiatrist, who's played by Donald Pleasence, is named Sam Loomis, who is also the name of Psycho's Marion Crane's secret lover. In another homage to the Hitchcock film, Jamie Lee Curtis is the daughter of Jeanette Leigh, who is in Psycho, who was murdered in the shower scene. So those are two very distinct nods to Alfred Hitchcock. And I feel like this film was really created in celebration of that because obviously John Carpenter was a huge fan of that movie. Hence why he took Jamie Lee Curtis because he knew it would be a great marketing move, as I said. But I love the incorporation of naming the psychiatrist Sam Loomis because if you've watched Psycho, literally the name gives it away. It's called Psycho. The guy's playing a psychiatrist. But in the movie Psycho, the guy's an actual psycho because he's playing as his mother. He's literally role-playing as being his mother as well as himself at the same time. Like, that's insane. Now another fun fright is that a lot of the characters in this film were named by people that John Carpenter knew. One example is that Laurie Strode is actually the name of John Carpenter's ex-girlfriend. Now if I was his ex-girlfriend and I see my name in a film, I'm going to be extremely offended. I'm like, damn, he hates me that much. <laughs> now there's a couple more, but I promise these next facts all connect with each other. One being that Carpenter was inspired by a childhood experience when he visited a psychiatric hospital and met a child who quote-unquote looked evil and stared at him. Now keeping that in mind, you guys are not ready for this next fact that I'm going to tell you. On December 7th, 1982, a man murdered an elderly couple in Fullerton, California, and during his trial, he said he committed the murder because he watched Halloween 2 after consuming PCP, marijuana, and alcohol. Now, the entire movie was screened during the trial, where like the defense tried to blame the film for the gruesome crime. They were literally trying to blame the film for the action that this guy was doing. Now it's crazy to think about, but the elderly couple in question, who are Francis and Eileen Harbitz, 
were stabbed 43 times and the man accused was found guilty and convicted of murder. Now there's definitely so much more to talk about in this film as well as all the foolish mistakes that they made being that the budget was so small. I'll definitely be saving that for when I review Halloween 2 because as you know there's so many films in this universe of Halloween and it just kept carrying on. There's like I think 10 films of it. I could be wrong maybe less or more. There's just so many makes and remakes and all that stuff but there's one more thing that I want to leave you guys with and it's the ending scene of this film which is one of my favorites if not my favorite actually you know what I'm gonna say it it is my favorite scene in this film because it is so dramatic it is so intense and dramatic and and horrific and suspenseful it's just done so perfectly I love it to death and if you don't know what I'm seeing I'm talking about it's the scene where Laurie's running away from Michael, gets into Tommy's house, who's the one that she babysits, gets in, locks the door, tells Tommy to like run, go upstairs, hide, but she realizes that Michael's already inside the house because you can hear him breathing behind the couch. And that's another thing that I love about this film is the incorporation of the breathing of Michael. It's just so terrible and it leaves you like listening like being heightened in your senses like listening for any heavy breathing whenever you're done with the film it's it, i mean i do i did that a lot and like they also incorporate it into the end credits well i love this scene because as soon as the like kids run out because she ends up getting attacked again by michael the kids run away because she thinks she's finally defeated him and there's two there's tommy and then another girl that's inside and they run away and as they're running away Sam Loomis, who is Michael Myers' psychiatrist, sees this and I think it hits him that, oh my god, Michael's in that house. And thinking that Michael's dad, Laurie's, has like her back to him. And then he rises up, like he's laying down and he rises up while sitting down. I'm like, oh, oh, oh. And there's an audience reaction to this and they like all start shrieking and they're like, Laurie, turn around. Like they're like all freaking out. And Laurie gets up very slowly and then as Laurie's getting up, so is Michael. And then she's walking away, about to leave. And then Michael attacks her from behind, starts choking her, trying to kill her. And then Laurie lifts off his mask. And that's the first time that we see Michael's face for like a split second. I can't even say three seconds. It was like a split second, but we see what he looks like. And there's something wrong with his eye. And I'm pretty sure it's from when... Laurie attacked him with one of the coat hangers when she was in the closet. So this happened and then Sam Loomis enters, shoots Michael. He walks up the stairs and Michael's still there, standing there, and he shoots him like a few more times and then Michael falls off the balcony in the house. And we see a scene of him laying on the floor, assuming he's dead, right? And Laurie and Sam, they engage in conversation and everything. And then he walks over to the balcony, looks down, and then creepy music starts playing. Michael's not there anymore. He's gone. He's missing. He's not dead. He's alive. And there's just no dialogue in this scene. And all we just see is Sam Loomis looking directly down, terrified, his eyes widened. 
and re Laurie realizing that he's not turning around or saying anything and he's just frozen she realizes that he's not there anymore she starts breaking down crying and it's a very very intense scene but I love it because it sets up the film for so many other films to be created hence why Halloween 2 is literally like five minutes after this film was done like it's set five minutes after Michael disappears and it's just so good it's so good hearing the screams of the audience reaction when they don't see Michael there and that creepy music starts playing the I can't do it but <laughs> I'll get copyrighted if I actually put the song it just chills down my spine and so many other people's spines hence why this film was ranked number one best Halloween movie ever by Variety. Now before we stab a knife in today's episode, I do want to go over the poll results from the previous episode. Now the question was the best slash favorite Halloween candy. And that's perfect for today because it's Halloween if you're listening to this on Halloween. And there were seven different options. There was Reese's, Kit Kat, Snickers, Twix, any sour candy, chips, or other replying Q&A. And the number one was any sour candy which sour candy has been getting very popular recently. So if you notice like a lot of different brands that have been incorporating sour into their candies, that's the reason why it's because it's become very popular. Second place was actually tied between three different candies, those being Reese's, Twix, and chips. Third place was Kit Kat and Snickers and other, which was replying Q and A or Q and A, excuse me. My God, I cannot speak. And it is, love me some money lol those dollar bills add up and that's by hayden that is so true because if you guys don't know what i'm talking about sometimes they'll give out a dollar bill and then have like a person to vote for in the election for like the parents which is a very smart marketing move they put a dollar bill and then they put like the the face of like vote so and so for mayor and it's like attached to a dollar bill and i think it's very smart because the kid's gonna want the money they're not going to know what the paper's for. And then the adults are the one that vote. So very smart marketing move. And those dollar bills definitely do add up. I remember like one Halloween night when I went trick-or-treating, I got like 15 of those. I'm like that's $15 right there for doing nothing, for walking up to someone's house. So very smart marketing move. Thank you to everyone who participated, for everyone that dropped something in the Q&A. And there is one under this episode, so make sure to check it out. That is a dagger on episode 11 of the horror headquarters thank you so much for listening to the entirety of this episode if you got this far i absolutely adore this film it is definitely a film that also cemented my interest in the horror genre altogether just breaking it down talking about my favorite scenes talking about everything that happened behind the scenes the creation of the soundtrack all of it together is just absolutely amazing to think about and I just adore it so much. So like I said, thank you so much for listening. Make sure to follow us if you aren't yet. We're on Spotify, Apple Music. We're on Amazon Music. We're on every pl platform at this point. So please make sure to hit that little follow button if you really enjoyed this episode. I really appreciate it if you guys can also rate us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Because that's what gets us to more viewers like you that are listening right now to discover this channel. And this is all done by me. 
all the editing, all the recording, all of it, the script, all me. So I really do appreciate it because you're supporting an indie artist right now. So once again, thank you so much. Make sure to subscribe to our newsletter on the Horror Headquarters website, which will also be linked in this episode. You can send your email out and we will be sending out a bunch of emails about upcoming episodes when we have enough subscribers. And like I said, it's free. You guys are going to be getting all the deets on everything I'm doing behind the scenes, what I'm preparing for, and also maybe a little sheet about a potential shirt order if anyone's interested, as well as a bunch of other really cool things happening in the horror universe. So there's there's only benefits to signing up for the email newsletter. You Like, why aren't you on it yet? <laughs> but once again, thank you so, so, so much for listening. I'm going to keep saying that because I really am so grateful for you guys' support. It really means so much. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at the Horror Headquarters and on Twitter at the Horror HQ. And make sure to catch up in any previous episodes of the Horror Headquarters that you have yet to listen to. Because they're all amazing and I promise you, you will love them all. But until next time, tread very lightly and pray for forgiveness. Midnight hour is approaching.